Alright folks, we are going to get underway here. Thank you so much for coming out. I see uh, quite a few familiar faces. I want to thank you each individually for coming. And uh, we look forward to getting to know more of you in our regular attendance circuit for our events program. Just to briefly uh, introduce or reintroduce Ad Infinitum, our school, for those of you who have uh, attended in the past, we are the Institute of World Politics, and we are a graduate school of national security and international affairs dedicated to developing leaders with a sound understanding of international realities and the ethical conduct of statecraft based on knowledge and appreciation of the Western moral tradition and America's founding principles more generally. And uh, Eric is actually a, are you an alumnus or are you a current student? Current student of, of IWP. And uh, Eric will be presenting today on the topic of the Caucasus. And he will review uh, several points of interest in that region. And we want to thank you very much for coming out today. A few more points of order. Today's event is going to be completely on the record. So feel free to ask questions, um, you know, post pictures, record, anything that you see fit. Eric has very kindly accepted. And a little bit more about um, Eric. He is a fellow at the Eurasian Research and Analysis Institute, uh, founder of which is also in attendance today. If you have any further questions, very reputable organization. And that gentleman is actually off to the right right now. And uh, Eric specializes in U.S. foreign policy, Eurasia, and geopolitics. He's currently a candidate for his master's degree here in statecraft and international affairs and is a specialty at IWP. And this event today is co-hosted and sponsored by the Kosciuszko Chair of Polish Studies. They're an embedded academic team within our institution. So Eric, we want to thank you so much for coming out and uh, we cede the floor to you. Let's give him a warm um, uh, round of applause. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I also want to thank Dr. Horakiewicz for letting me to share my research. And uh, thank, I want to thank the Institute for this wonderful uh, venue. So uh, as the title of my presentation suggests today, I'll be talking about the Caucasus, the ethnicities uh, of the region, some of the languages that are spoken there. And then I will uh, segue into the Russian conquest of the Caucasus. And finally, I will conclude my uh, presentation by uh, talking about the security threats emanating from North Caucasus. So let's get started. So surely we all have heard about uh, countries like Chechnya, Ingushetia, Armenia, but the region as a whole, the Caucasus as a whole, remains a terra incognita for many, meaning an unknown land. So let me just briefly give you a, a, an excursion of some of the geographic features uh, of the region. So uh, Caucasus is the land between the uh, Black and Caspian Seas. Politically, it is divided between North Caucasus and South Caucasus. Uh, the North Caucasus, ha Caucasus has uh, seven republics. Uh, from right to left, you have uh, Dagestan, Chechnya, Ingushetia, North Ossetia, or lo as locals call them, themselves Alanya, uh, Gabardino-Balkaria, Karachay-Cherkesia, Adygea, 
And these seven republics are uh, part of the Russian Federation, uh, meaning they fall uh, under Russia's jurisdiction. Uh, and if you keep moving forward uh, towards Stavropolsky Krai uh, and Krasnodar, you'll uh, hit the Russian steppes, uh, vast flatlands, uh, and this is uh, one of the main reasons uh, is that the Caucasus plays such an important geopolitical role uh, for Russia, because it technically serves as a formidable barrier that protects the industrial heart of uh, Russia. So uh, the South Caucasus is, uh, uh, is home to... Uh, three independent uh, republics. You have Armenia, Georgia, and Azerbaijan. Also, the region is uh, home to three internationally uh, unrecognized uh, republics. You have Ab Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and Artsakh Republic, also known as uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. So, uh, the Caucasus is home to 50-plus uh, indigenous uh, nationalities, and to understand the complexities, ethnic tensions, and some of the political problems, one just needs to look at the language map of the Caucasus, uh, the, diverse, uh, the ethnic and uh, both ethnic and uh, linguistic diversity has been a both blessing and curse for the Caucasus, one of the main reasons, uh, like I mentioned, for so many political complexities. So the region is home to four language groups, and these language groups are unique to the region, meaning they have uh, uh, developed and sort of originated in the Caucasus and are spoken only there. So you have four Caucasian language groups. You have Northwestern or Cherkassian. Uh, some of the ethnicities that uh, fall under this group are Abkhaz, Adig, Kabarda, Cherkessi. You have central language group, uh, Chechen and Ingush are uh, uh, among the most uh, uh, dominant speakers of this uh, language group. Uh, you have Northeastern or Dagestanian, which in turn uh, splits into three subgroups. Uh, so the first subgroups is Avars, Akhvakh, Godoberi, Tindis. Then you have the second subgroup, Lag, Dargo. Uh, and finally, the third subgroup, Lesgin, including Lesgi, Tabasaran, Rutul, Tsahur, and Angul. And finally, the fourth uh, language group of the Caucasus, uh, Southern or Kartvelian. And among the uh, most uh, dominant speakers of the language are Georgians, Zan, Mingrelians, and Lats. The region is also uh, home to other uh, people that sort of belong to different language families. You have Turkic language speakers, uh, Azeris, Karachais, Gumriks. You have Iranian language speakers, uh, obviously Kurds, uh, Yazidis, Ossetians, Talish, and of course Indo-European. Among uh, the, the most dominant speakers of uh, Indo-European language are Armenians, Caucasus Greeks, and Pontic Greeks. So just take a moment and look at this language map, and you'll see how diverse, uh, both ethnically and linguistically, the languages, which uh, has been the, one of the cause roots of uh, all the conflicts. Okay, uh, Caucasian uh, origins, just uh, a brief information on this. Uh, really, among the Caucasian people, uh, only Georgians and Armenians have had the longest tradition of statehood. Ask Georgians and they will happily tell you about uh, King David IV, who reunited all the Georgian lands into one kingdom. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, aside from Persians, uh, Armenians have the uh, lo uh, longest recorded history, meaning the presence of Armenian people in the region has been the most consistently recorded for royal dynasties. Uh, but of course, uh, Caucasus has been a transit region for a lot of uh, uh, people. 
uh, th there has been a migration of Huns and Bulgars, uh, which enabled the formation of uh, Turkic spe speakers. Uh, for instance, uh, Balkar Karachai people are descendants of Kipchuk and Turkic Khazars, who controlled Northeast Caucasus uh, from 7th to 11th centuries. And this is when we see the export, uh, I should import, I should say, of Islam to the region. And obviously, Seljuk invasion that brought uh, Turkmens from Central Asia and then later uh, continued migrating toward Europe, hence the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the one uh, state or kingdom, I should say, that really disappeared without a trace is uh, Caucasian Albania. Most of the information we get from Strabo and some uh, Armenian historians. And interestingly, both Armenian historians and Strabo speak very favorably of Caucasian Albania, depicting them as handsome, beautiful, tall people who were uh, uh, masterful farmers. And uh, uh, exactly this time, Armenians uh, spent sort of a lot of time exporting Christianity from Armenia to Caucasian Albania. The Georgians did the same what is now in Abkhazia. And uh, Ar Armenians really did play a significant role in Caucasian Albania. And the alphabet uh, was sort of a mixture of Armenian, Ethiopian, and uh, Georgian uh, uh, alphabets. Uh, that's the most of the... Uh, and Strabo also tells us that although it was a one united kingdom, uh, the uh, language diversity was intense. People couldn't understand each other, though they all were part of uh, one kingdom. And it uh, actually occupied what is uh, today southern Dagestan and some areas of uh, modern Azerbaijan. So uh, one of the first uh, modern linguists that truly tried to understand the essence of Caucasian uh, languages was Hungarian uh, linguist, and I apologize if I butcher his name, uh, Gabor Balinte Sheshgatolna. I'll be referring to him as Balint. Uh, so, uh, the main, Balint, actually, he was the one who studied Kabardian language and the main driving force that sort of made him uh, study Caucasian languages was that he really believed that uh, Hungarian and Kabardian were incredibly uh, similar. And he also uh, believed that the descendants of uh, Hungarians actually came from this region. So before actually joining the Caucasian expedition, uh, he traveled to Russia, studied the Turanic languages, Oriental languages, uh, visited uh, Tatarstan, uh, traveled throughout Russia, uh, gathered a lot of valuable material, um, came back to Hungary, presented his material to uh, the Academy of Sciences, Unfortunately, most of the material was uh, neglected, and uh, obviously this had a political reason. Uh, so, uh, but technically, at that time, it was a radical idea uh, to challenge the Finno-Ugric origin of uh, Hungarian people, and he actually put that idea forward. Uh, and also, the academy was not open to the idea that Hungarian could be part of an oriental uh, language. Uh, so the things got really ugly between him and the Academy of Sciences. He left Hungary, uh, lived in self-exile in uh, North Africa and uh, the Middle East. I believe he spent nine years wandering around. Finally, his friends convinced him and brought him home. And this is when he gets invited to join the Caucasian expedition. And the man who organized this whole scientific adventure, his name was uh, Count Geno Ziki. So he uh, technically shared the idea that, look, this whole Finno-Ugric origin of Hungarians is, is one-sided. There has to be something else. 
Uh, and the uh, main agenda was exploring the origins of ancient Hungarian. Uh, Hungarians uh, also he had a private agenda. He believed that his family had connections with Georgian prince uh, with, uh, with the name Ziki, uh, exactly the same way as it's spelled, except instead of Y, the Georgian prince's name ended with I. So that was his private agenda. Other uh, members of the expedition were Lajos Zadetsky Gartos, and this is how we learn about this whole expedition. He took extensive notes in his diary. Uh, you had Jacob Chilingarian, an Armenian who happened to be in Hungary at the time. Uh, who, uh, he was asked to join the expedition uh, to do uh, translations from Russia, Russian. And finally, uh, Dr. Wozinski, who was an archaeologist. Overall, the expedition was really, really successful. They traveled throughout the region, visited all the North Caucasian uh, uh, repu uh, 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 republics, uh, did a great research, met with high-profile officials, and but perhaps uh, the most valuable uh, outcome, asset I should say, of this expedition was the material that uh, Balint later used to produce uh, the first official uh, dictionary for Kabardian language. It is still a very valuable asset. It's used by linguists. It's about 611 pages. Uh, another uh, important uh, right assessment that he did was that Caucasus did truly serve as a transit uh, zone for uh, peoples like Avars, Samaritans, Hans, and uh, the ancestors of Hungarians were in fact in, in contact with these uh, ethnicities, and there had been a lot of genetic and linguistic mixture. So um, I'm not sure if uh, modern Hungary still sort of tries to push this theory away or not, but uh, lots of linguists uh, and ethnographers have come to accept uh, uh, this theory. Uh, of course, expedition had some flaws as well, particularly the members didn't really get along. Uh, and uh, I, I, I was blown away reading the notes of uh, Lajos Jadetsky Cardos. Uh, he didn't really speak very favorably about Balint. Apparently, they got a lot of complaints. Uh, on one occasion, he tried to flirt one of the wives of the most important high-profile officials in North Caucasus. Then when Zeno uh, uh, Ziki met with the Georgian prince, later the members of the royal family complained about the inappropriate stuff he did. So this was some of the funny stuff I came across. Uh, and uh, I also read some of the letters that Geno uh, Ziki wrote from Caucasus uh, back to Hungary. He too really wasn't, didn't really feel satisfied. He particularly lamented that the members were too independent. Everyone was doing the, their own thing. Uh, but overall, one like I said, one valuable asset that we sort of have this, uh, from this expedition was the Dictionary of Kabardian Language, about 611 pages, and it's still widely used by the linguists. So this is my favorite part, uh, Russian conquest of the Caucasus. Uh, so as Russia was expanding uh, towards Europe, uh, and after the Crimea's successful incorporation uh, into the Russian Empire, the Russians shifted their attention to Caucasus, uh, call it pivot to the Caucasus. And one of the most important events that really uh, happened during this time was the fall of the Georgian kingdom, that, uh, the kingdom that was annexed by Russians. Before the official annexation, Georgia was a protectorate of the Russian Empire. Uh, it had a great autonomy, had an independent church, and Russians did really promise to intervene in case of uh, foreign aggression. Uh, which happened, uh, uh, I believe, uh, right after the treaty was signed. A couple of years later, uh, Muhammad Agha 
Khan uh, from Persia attacked Georgia, ravaged the entire country, uh, wiped out Tbilisi, literally. Russians didn't really take any step to prevent that from happening. And one of the main explanations was that, hey, look, the roads are too impassable for the military. Uh, so but they didn't really take any step to prevent that from happening. Georgia was in ruins. And after Muhammad uh, uh, Agha died, two years later, uh, later, Russians built the Georgian military uh, road, stretching from the capital of North Ossetia, Vladikavkaz, which, by the way, uh, translated from Russian means rule the Caucasus. So it's pretty self-explanatory. So uh, uh, the, the road stretched from North Ossetia, Vladikavkaz, to uh, Tbilisi. Russians came in, and this is Daryl George right here. This is the uh, uh, gorge uh, the Russian troops passed to reach uh, to uh, Georgia. Uh, the whole coup was done, uh, was orchestrated by a Russified Georgian Pavel Tsitsishvili. Uh, Georgians really didn't, uh, you know, rebel or show any sort of, you know, opposition. Uh, the country was in a mess. And the uh, Russians short, uh, sort of justified their annexation by saying that there was a lot of conspiracy, conflict, internal power struggles. Uh, therefore, uh, uh, Georgia couldn't take its own fate into its own hands. So Russian intervention was, uh, you know, inevitable. Uh, well, never mind that uh, there were a lot of conspiracies and controversies in Russia as well. For instance, Alexander I, who conquered jo uh, uh, Georgia, he killed his own brother to uh, take the power. And, uh, well, Georgian kingdom became part of the Russian Empire. And at, at the, exactly this time, the uh, subjugation of the Caucasian people was happening in North Caucasus. And this whole expedition was uh, assigned to uh, Gen General Alexei Yermolov, uh, he invaded North Caucasus with 60,000 troops and 15,000 Cossacks. And this is when we see one of the first major deportation of local populations, particularly Cherkessians. I think about 200,000 Cherkessians were deported to Central, uh, uh, Central Asia. And uh, at this time, the, in North Caucasus, there was no concrete classification of ethnicities. So whether you were Avar, Chechen, or, uh, uh, or Georgian, or anything, you were just labeled as a Highlander, in Russian, Gorzi. So eventually, uh, Russian uh, military ethnographers brought this together, assigned each people their uh, respective ethnicity, if you will, and uh, Russians uh, sort of justified, again, their, save for uh, geopolitical interest, uh, justified their expansion to uh, Caucasus by saying that, hey, we're engaged in civilizing mission. Uh, they did russify the local population. And there was a general fascination with this exotic, unknown land called Caucasus among the Russian elites. And this is when we see uh, the giants of Russian literature also writing poems, novels about the Caucasus. Among the most prominent works are uh, Pushkin's The Captive of the Caucasus, or in Russian, Plenik of Gaza, uh, Lermontov, A Hero of Our Time, Geroi Nashova Vremini, and Tolstoy's Kazaki, The Cossacks. And uh, sort of uh, North Caucasus eventually was starting uh, incorporate, getting incorporated into uh, uh, Russian Empire. 
Well, obviously, uh, most local native populations were uh, against the Russian expansions and they, uh, they didn't welcome Russians with open arms. Uh, among the most fiercest fighters were Chechens uh, and this whole sort of fight for independence, fight for, you know, pushing Russians back, it spilled to Dagestan. And uh, although it began as a sort of independence movement, by 1824, uh, it had turned, the, the, the resistance had turned into jihad. And this is when we see the rise of muridism in North Caucasus. It's the, technically the doctrine that uh, calls for pure practice of Islam. And uh, among the most uh, fiercest uh, fighters was Imam Shamil. He was, uh, ethnically, he was an Avar, uh, lived in Dagestan. Uh, well, he literally spread fear among uh, the Russian army, but make no mistake, he was brutal himself too. Uh, killed his own follow followers for a slight uh, disloyalty. And he was, uh, he was successful in capturing m much of Dagestan, uh, except for Lesgistan. And uh, he created a theocratic state, and Russians obviously did freak out. He even uh, uh, lured Cherkessia to join jihad. So you had this whole, whole North Caucasus, this whole massive region, engaged in a holy war uh, against uh, Russians. Well, uh, obviously, Russians saved no effort to capture this guy. Uh, he had to uh, flee Dagestan, uh, move to Chechnya, where Chechens obviously welcomed him with uh, open arms. Uh, he there organized local Avars, Chechens, Dags into a powerful, mighty Murid force. And they were even successful in sort of beating Russians in uh, one of the most important battles in the region uh, close to River Valerik. Uh, Russians uh, pushed, uh, pushed back and uh, they used the same gorge uh, that you just saw the picture of to sort of move to Eastern Georgia. They did reach to Eastern Georgia. And one of the main reasons that sort of explains the Russian defeat was the, the demoralized state of the Russian uh, army. Uh, most of the uh, soldiers were poor peasants forced into army and brought from remote lands in Siberia. They were fighting for the land they had no idea about. But obviously Russians had superior weapons. Eventually they did push uh, uh, Shamil's army back to North Caucasus, captured him and uh, exiled to Russia where he obviously died or was, in, was imprisoned, then later died. And uh, this is Shamil embedded on a rock in Dagestan. This is a mo modern picture. So that shows that uh, he's, he's still a source of inspiration for uh, many Dagestanis and uh, for local uh, populations. I'll get back to this uh, uh, shortly. Fast forward to the Soviet Union and the guy that we all love, uh, Uncle Joe, uh, just kidding. So, um, drawing of the ethnic borders, ticking bomb. Uh, well, before Soviets came in, uh, the people of North Caucasus didn't really have an identity in terms of national statehood. So, Soviets came in and started drawing the borders, assigning each ethnicity their respective territories. And uh, this is when we see the administrative division of the uh, Soviet Union. Uh, it was pretty hierarchical. You had republics, uh, autonomous republics, autonomous provinces, 
and uh, autonomous districts. Some questionable decisions were made during this uh, federaliz uh, federalization. For instance, uh, Artsakh Republic, predominantly an Armenian land, part of Armenia was just uh, uh, in, uh, transferred to Azerbaijan. I'll, again, I'll get back to this in a second. Partition of Ossetia didn't particularly make sense. It could have been a United States within Russia or Georgia or just the state for its own. Uh, and some historians said that the, the division of Kabardino, Balkaria, and Karacha, Cherkessia didn't really make sense. Uh, for, but it, it could have been Balkaria uh, and Karachai because both are uh, super Turkic uh, ethnicities, so they could have gotten along better. And this begs the question, is this part of Soviet Union's divide and rule policy, or what was this? Well, recently a lot of Sovietologists have come forward with a theory saying, look, this whole divide and rule theory is blown out of proportion, it's exaggerated. No matter how the ethnic borders were drawn, the diversity is so intense that it would produce the same outcomes. And had uh, the founders of the Soviet Union known uh, what their border drawing would produce after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they would have taken a different path. Well, I have a problem with this uh, theory. Uh, I think this was a de deliberately divided uh, uh, region and uh, it was coupled by massive deportations and there is no explanation for that. Again, the Cherkessians and the Talkalmiks, all of them were sort of kicked out of the region and Stalin even once famous, famously said that we should populate the region with uh, friendly people. And in case of, let me elaborate on uh, Artsakh Republic, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh. Again, historically an Armenian land populated by Armenians. And at this time, uh, he was uh, the commissar of the people of, uh, 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 people of the Caucasus. Uh, the, the Bureau uh, had a, held a meeting and they all decided that uh, Artsakh should be part of Armenia. Uh, and they even issued an official statement recognizing it. Stalin didn't really take part during the debate. Uh, he was present. He didn't say a single word. Uh, in one night, he had a meeting behind the closed doors and probably convinced the uh, members of the bureau to reverse the decision. Uh, the next day, obviously, the bureau incorporated uh, Artsakh into Azerbaijan. Armenians protested. Uh, it sort of became ugly, and uh, Artsakh was assigned a special status. Uh, and another uh, reason that sort of really uh, drives us close to the theory of divide and rule, uh, Russia at the time was uh, geopolitically very vulnerable. So there was a, a sort of an attempt to win over the nationalities without any bloodshed. And uh, in this case, Artsakh Republic sort of was used to lure Armenians first and Azeris. And then this is when Soviets were negotiating with Turkey and Ataturk was a hard negotiator. He did everything not to allow Armenians to have an extra land. He sort of uh, brought an excuse saying that if Armenians get more land in the future, they'll have more intensified uh, uh, territorial claims against uh, Turkey. Uh, and even before the Soviet... Uh, uh, so, Soviet-Turkish negotiations, uh, Nakhijevan, an enclave south to Armenia, did not have a border with Turkey. After the negotiations, Turks got a border with Nakhijevan, and today, uh, Turkey and Nakhijevan share a 17-kilometer border. Uh, 
Uh, other historians say that, uh, look, the main reason was that, uh, you know, uh, Stalin wanted to give uh, an opportunity to, uh, to shepherds to sort of wander around with their cattle without passing a uh, Republican border. Well, I think that's a very naive theory, uh, given the uh, circumstances that were on the ground. So, uh, this, some of the more current problems are the result of this very uh, divide and rule policy, ad hoc uh, border drawings. Uh, well, uh, and uh, sort of the Russia did gain leverage out of this uh, divide and rule policy. It could affect one country if it needed to uh, sort of uh, exploit one conflict to affect the other one. So divide and rule did was really uh, Stalin's uh, uh, sort of uh, initiation, if you will. Again, uh, fast forward to uh, modern uh, Russia and modern t uh, Caucasus, the security threats, uh, threats and uh, semi-successful uh, pacification. Uh, to, uh, to give Russia some credit, Russia did really achieve a type of pacification in the Caucasus. The fighting has stopped, uh, the major fighting, yes, there are some guerrilla activities going on in the mountains, and as locals say, uh, say our uh, youngsters went to the mountains, meaning they joined the guerrilla forces. Uh, but uh, let me just give you a brief idea the price Russia paid to have Caucasus within its borders and till today it is paying the price for it. So speaking about the pacification of the Caucasus, it is impossible to neglect the two Chechen wars, obviously. I will not go uh, deep into details, but sort of to uh, give you uh, an idea of what really happened. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, they uh, exercised their constitutional right, declared themselves uh, independent. Uh, well, Chechnya wanted to follow suit, obviously. And uh, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, Chechnya and Ingushetia were uh, one sort of country. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ingushetia took off, said bye to Chechnya, and decided to remain within Russia. And Chechnya declared itself as Republic of Ichkeria. So what happened? You had a man named Zohar Dudayev, who was a Soviet air commander uh, stationed in Estonia at the time. Chechens asked him uh, to return uh, back to Grozny, where he took charge of this whole independence movement. Uh, Russia didn't really pay much attention in the beginning phase because there were a lot of power struggles in Moscow. Uh, you had uh, Yeltsin uh, engaged in a power struggle against Gorbachev. So and this begs the question, if Russia did pay attention all the time, would the, the blood, preventing the bloodshed would be possible. Well, some say uh, if th they did pay some attention, maybe Chechnya could have become like a sort of a Tatarstan type of a model country with incredible autonomy in charge of its own resources and tax systems. But that unfortunately did not happen. And the Russian military withdrew leaving behind massive uh, weaponry. Russian, uh, uh, I mean, excuse me, che Chechen uh, fighters got control of these weapons. And then you had a full-blown war. Uh, Yeltsin saw no other choice but to uh, invade Chechnya. And uh, the uh, outcome was the assassination of uh, Chechnya's uh, president, uh, uh, Dudayev, Zohar Dudayev. He was on the phone with a member of Russian parliament. The air, Russian air reconnaissance cut the signal and they dropped the racket on him. So uh, after him, uh, a, name, a man named uh, Zelimkhan Yandarbiev, he took uh, charge. At this time, there was only one entity that recognized the independence of Chechnya. It was Taliban. Uh, 
no other country, including Saudi Arabia, no other Muslim country recognized it. Uh, so uh, there was even a, a Chechen embassy in Afghanistan, in, in uh, Kabul. So, and uh, Jan Derbaev, he was also the vice president of Zohar Dudaev. He actually came back, became the president. And this guy was really tough, again, engaged in uh, atrocities himself. Uh, uh, and this whole world was coupled with the terrorist attacks in Moscow, Russians uh, uh, ravaging Chechnya, so it was a mess. Uh, well, again, uh, the outcome was his assassination. He was uh, killed by Russian security forces in uh, Doha, Qatar, with an RPG, and that caused a massive diplomatic breach between Qatar and uh, a Russian Federation. Um, and there is this even famous uh, footage in YouTube, if you want, you can watch it later, where he comes to uh, Moscow to negotiate with Yeltsin. He refuses to have Yeltsin on top of the table, makes him to sit in front of him, so as equals. Well, obviously, that was not something Russians could tolerate. Uh, so, and after him, another man, uh, uh, Aslan Maskhadov. He, he, he did really introduce some radical legislation, introduced Sharia into Chechnya. And uh, at this time, Basayev, the, the, the guy who was engaged in massive terrorist acts in Russia, he was gaining an immense popularity in Chechnya. Uh, so he, he actually inspired to sort of start a, can, a caliphate stretching from Black Sea to uh, Volga. Uh, Russians did, again, really freak out this time. But and Mashkhadov's uh, popularity was sort of declining, but at the meantime, Russia did realize that the war was not going the way they wanted to. It was incredibly unpopular in Moscow. It was really hard to explain ethnic Russians why Russians were dying in uh, Chechnya. Uh, so what happened, uh, a Russian general, uh, General Lebedz, uh, he had a meeting with uh, Ashkadov where they technically, uh, well, sort of promised to recognize the Chechnya's independence. Uh, all was needed was to sort of gain some uh, time to mobilize forces and come back again. And uh, then things, uh, the guns were sort of quiet for a while and uh, Putin came uh, to power. Putin came to power, and uh, the second Chechnya war began, sort of Russia justified its uh, uh, invasion of Chechnya by saying that Basayev has invaded, and which he did invade uh, Dagestan and declared Dagestan an independent republic. At this time, Russians went in with a massive force. Uh, again, you had some uh, crazy stuff going on in Chechnya. Basayev was engaged in massive terrorist uh, atrocities. Uh, I'm pretty sure most of you remember North Ost, where uh, Chechen, uh, 50 Chechens uh, captured the Russians in Moscow in a theater. Uh, 125 people died, or Beslan, about 350 people died, most of them kids. So it was really, uh, really, really ugly. But uh, ultimately, Russia did succeed in Chechnya from their perspective. Uh, and right, uh, Putin picked uh, Ahmad Kadyrov, uh, current president, Ram Ramzan Kadyrov's uh, father, who was in the beginning originally was very anti-Russian, and there's even a footage where he says, I'll assign my soldiers to kill as many Russians as is possible. Well, allegedly, he didn't like that this whole independence movement was becoming too Islamic, too radical, so he decided to change uh, sides. Uh, well, in 2004, he was assassinated too uh, during a parade in Chechnya. If my memory doesn't fail, fail me, there was a grenade under his seat, so it went off. And uh, Ramzan Kadyrov, his son, uh, became uh, Chechnya's uh, president. 
And just this, I'm t just telling this to give you an idea of the price Russia has paid to keep Chechnya until today. Uh, although like Chechnya is uh, quiet, uh, Kadyrov is a Chechen nationalist. Uh, he also embraces Islam. But at the meantime, the guy needs some credit for sort of keeping like the ultra radicals uh, quiet a bit. Uh, there are some minor fightings uh, uh, in the mountains going on. But uh, today, some politicians, pundits, historians uh, sort of describe Chechnya as a, a feudal canate, uh, meaning Moscow pays the billions, keeps the Chechen uh, elites happy, and Chechnya remains quiet. And to be fair, some of the money also goes to building hospitals and uh, schools. So this is Russia's budget, uh, uh, how much Moscow uh, how much money Moscow pours uh, into keeping Caucasus calm. So the lion's share of budget goes to Dagestan, uh, uh, North Caucasus Republic, 46.7 uh, billion rubles. Uh, Yakutia and Kamchatka are Siberian regions. Uh, Crimea, 22.3 uh, billion. And Chechnya, 22.2 billion. So, and before uh, crime, this whole Crimea thing happened. Chechnya was the third largest uh, uh, m money recipient from uh, Moscow. And this begs the question, what happens if, when Russia, uh, or if Russia runs out of money? And believe me, Kadyrov uh, is not shy to express his discontent when he hears rumors about possible uh, budget cuts. Uh, also, there is a constant competition between Dagestan and Chechnya, who will get the most money. Uh, uh, but sort of compared to other North Caucasus republics, Chechnya is relatively calm. Uh, things are not quite uh, the same in Ingushetia. Uh, it's one of the poorest regions in Russia and been a quite a headache for Moscow. Uh, you have a lot of inter-clan uh, killings going on, uh, people going, going to forests, meaning joining the guerrillas. Uh, you have a rise of militant uh, Islam in Gabardino, Bulgaria. That's manifested in 2005 when a group of militants uh, captured a government uh, building, killing 150 people. And uh, one thing that I also just sort of just want to touch on uh, briefly was the Georgian war. Uh, Russia sort of did achieve its objective, sending a message to the West saying that, look, this whole red line around the Caucasus is real. And if you try to initiate something, this is how I'm going to respond. However, it also produced some unintended consequences for uh, Russia. For instance, well, uh, most North Caucasus republics really did support Russia when Russia recognized uh, South Ossetia and Abkhazia. Uh, but they also became too excited. Now they're pursuing their own independence. Uh, for instance, uh, Adygeans want more uh, independence and the one more area with, uh, with Cherkasia within the Russian Federation. You had Lesgis. Uh, who don't have their own state uh, and live in southern Dagestan and part of uh, Azerbaijan. Now they want a national unity. Uh, so, uh, and then many Chechens have asked themselves, look, these guys got their independence like this, and we had to fight two wars, yet we're still uh, not really recognized the way they are. Uh, so this is the uh, sort of un uh, unintended consequences of uh, Russia's war in Georgia. Another thing I want to talk about is the uh, current uh, relations between the North Caucasus and uh, Russia. Well, uh, periodically in Russia you have this sentimental, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not some nationalist, sorry, nationalist sentiments where thousands of ethnic Russians took over the street with slogans like Russia for Russians, Moscow for Moscovites. And I don't want to just uh, give you the one side of the story, uh, although I do, I do not justify this, but also some ethnic Russians uh, 
sort of lament that uh, people who come from North Caucasus totally disrespect their lifestyle and uh, which is in, in some cases is true but again you, uh, it, things can sometimes get ugly between these two. The, the last riot um, uh, was in back in 2010 in Manezhna Ploshit, uh, Manezhna Square. So what happened? A Chechen guy stabbed to death an uh, ethnic uh, Russian football fan. And within hours, thousands of people took over the streets. Uh, it went, lasted for a couple of days. It was really ugly. Uh, they beat, beat people left and right, non-Russian. Uh, well, that sucks for you. They uh, actually went into a metro, stopped the trains, went in, beat people left and right. And so, but luckily, in the past seven years, think, uh, things have been sort of quiet. And uh, well, knock on the wood, hopefully, it will stay this way. Uh, but the point is that you periodically have these nationalist uh, movements in Russia, and uh, it's pretty volatile, and no one can really predict what will happen next year. Uh, I found another poster, I forgot to mention this earlier, again, many ethnic Russians uh, are not really happy that so much money goes to Chechnya, I found this poster, it says, Allah dayot Chechnya budget, Putin which means Allah gives Chechnya money, a budget, thank Putin for that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and uh, you'll be surprised, but a certain number of Russians don't know that Chechnya is part of Russia. I guess it is also fair to say that a lot of Americans don't know that Puerto Rico is part of the, sort of the United States. Uh, but in terms of geopolitical uh, importance, can't compare those two. No offense to people of Puerto Rico. And uh, sort of let me uh, move on. And uh, I got this from The Guardian. This is as of uh, 20, uh, 2014 or 2015, I believe. So this map shows the terrorist attacks in Russia since 19, uh, 1991. And as you can see, the overwhelming majority of attacks have happened in North Caucasus, which again sheds light on the vulner uh, vulner volatility uh, of the region. Uh, in 2015, the FSB, that's the new name for Russian KGB, uh, released an estimate saying that about 2,700 Russian citizens have joined uh, ISIS. Well, think about it, 2,700, that's a serious number. Uh, and some people say that this whole Russia's involvement in Syria will sort of uh, exasperate these Islamic sentiments uh, in Russia as well. Uh, and uh, make no mis mistakes, there are uh, many ISIS-affiliated uh, groups wandering in uh, Dagestan, in Chechnya. Just recently, in 2016, uh, a Dagestani uh, police officer uh, was captured in a forest by a militant group. Uh, they put a camera on his face, uh, asked him to, uh, to look at a cam camera and say what he thinks about the authorities. And the guy did something really heroic, got to give him a credit for that. He looked at the camera and said, continue your good work, brothers. Obviously, he was uh, executed after that. And uh, one of the other reasons that sort of explains this uh, tendency of uh, people in North Caucasus, uh, primarily the young people, shift towards a radical uh, Islamism is that Though so much money goes to the region, the region is still poor. There is a high unemployment. Uh, many choose to leave the region, go to work in Russia's gas fields or Moscow, and uh, they sort of uh, mingle with their in uh, counterparts from Central Asia. Ideas get exchanged. Some of them are really upset, and obviously a portion of them choose the worst uh, alternative possible, joining these uh, uh, militant groups. Uh, 
Well, and uh, by the way, on July 17th, I'm doing another uh, event on Russia and Islam, so I really don't want to steal my own thunder. If you're around, uh, please do come along. Uh, I will stop right here, and I'm happy to answer uh, any questions you guys may have. Yes, sir. Well, to answer to your first question, uh, so to, again, like I mentioned in the beginning of my presentation, North Caucasus in particular serves as a uh, sort of a, a formidable barrier to protect Russia's industrial heart. That's how historically Russia has been invaded for, by Tatars, uh, Persians uh, through North Caucasus. And uh, uh, again, it's, it's a flat vastland, so you need Caucasus to keep the industrial heart uh, intact. Uh, on the other thing is uh, what is called a geopolitical domino. If North Caucasus goes, if Chechnya declares independence, chooses its own path, they will set a precedent for other republics to sort of uh, pursue their own independence and Russia will just shrink back to its, you know, uh, original borders. And uh, I'm so sorry, what was your second question? Well, there's a claim that the Hebrews have migrated through uh, uh, the Khazars and the Khazar Empire converted, at least the king converted to Judaism. There's a story on that. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, much details about it, but I know that the Khazars did, in fact, uh, uh, sort of wandered around in Caucasus, particularly from 7th to 11th centuries, and they're actually, uh, they, they did too, were, were sort of engaged in spreading uh, uh, Islam in the region, but um, I don't have much information on, uh, the, on the kingdom you were mentioning, so I have to look at it. Yeah. Yes, sir. First of all, thank you for the presentation, very illuminating. Uh, the question I have is, is slightly related on to the demographic situation in Russia. You know, like Bangladesh, which is a much, much smaller country, has equal mm -hmm. larger amount of population than Russia. And some, uh, you know, demographic experts would say that by 2050 or a number like that, I remember reading at some point, the number of uh, ethnic Russians or Christians vis-a-vis -vis the Muslim mm -hmm. uh, population of Russia would be equal or the Muslims would surpass. Uh, what is sort of the dynamic that What's the role of the Northern Caucasus in terms of the demographic trends? Is there really a high birth rate? Are they the contributing factor? I guess we can sure. elaborate on that. Sure. Well, uh, I don't see that happening in the immediate horizon, uh, you know, like Muslim population taking over the Slavic population. But what's clear, the birth rate in Russia has slowed down. Uh, you have uh, economic problems. People uh, are s sort of hesitant. Uh, and, uh, well, it, it has been recorded that the population of ethnic Russians is going down. In the meantime, you have an influx of uh, people of North Caucasus to uh, Moscow, to St. Petersburg, other metropolitan areas. And uh, international uh, marriages have become uh, popular recently, so if you have a lot of mixture of uh, Russians marrying uh, people from North Caucasus. So that could be the case sometime in the future, but to be frank with you, I do not see that happening in the immediate uh, future. Yes, sir? Do you see a connection Russians' uh, involvement in North Caucasus and where they're putting the money uh, in terms of where potential oil fields or pipeline routes are going to be in the mountains? 
Well, that, that's a very good question. Uh, if you ask me, uh, the primary goal for Russians putting so much, yeah, North Caucasus is home to several important gas pipelines, uh, particularly go, going from Caspian uh, to uh, other regions. But if you ask me, the primary reason that Russia pours so much money into Caucasus is just to keep local elites happy, to keep, uh, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, Galdera from complaining too much, or just just that that's another way to sort of keep the uh, region quiet, uh, giving them a lot of money, sort of helping them to build schools and hospitals. I don't think that the investment is purely economic. It's more sort of like geopolitical and political. And uh, if you think, uh, I mean, Siberia pours so much money uh, to Moscow and they technically get nothing in return and all the money goes to uh, Caucasus. Uh, if, if your, idea, if your uh, point w was the case, obviously Moscow would sort of pour back money into uh, Siberian areas where the gas production is to get more money out of it. But that's not the case. Uh, Russia gets the uh, tax revenues and everything like that and just everything goes to Caucasus to keep the region quiet. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Um, my first question is, when, when the Soviet Union well, uh, the first question is really a good one. Uh, so this is what happened. Like I mentioned, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, republics had the constitutional right based on Soviet constitution to declare themselves uh, independent. And uh, well, Chechnya was an autonomous republic. Well, technically, it could uh, declare itself uh, independent, but the, the problem that some Russians were uh, putting forward was that they did not hold a referendum. It was a, uh, you know, it was a full-blown movement for independence uh, without asking the opinion of the people. It, uh, so the same with the, the why is the case is different with, uh, with Nagorno-Karabakh because people did really hold a referendum there. Ninety-eight percent uh, decided they don't want to stay with Azerbaijan; they want to pursue their own fate. But that was not the case with Chechnya. Well, and I'm not suggesting that they did not have the right to be independent or anything like that. But I'm just putting the f uh, Russian perspective here, which sort of. Uh, uh, exploited the fact that there was no referendum. Uh, to answer your second question, uh, uh, the problem of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, got to us from the past. Uh, again, like I said, it was uh, Stalin's uh, master plan of uh, sort of controlling uh, the nationalities in North Caucasus. Uh, today, uh, well, of course, uh, it would be ludicrous of me say that Russia does not use Nagorno-Karabakh to sort of exert uh, influence to control uh, either nations. Uh, but I would not say that was the that's the only reason that the problem is still uh, uh, unresolved. They just don't know of any political solution. They don't want to uh, piss off Azeris too much, and uh, so they just left. It's it's a status quo the way it is. And as you may know, they sell weapons to both countries to sort of keep the uh, balance of power intact. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, of course, Russia has historically used all the conflicts throughout the Soviet Union to, you know assert itself as a mediator or sort of use it as a leverage to control any of it. But again, that's not the only reason. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, 
as a North Corpus. I'm just curious, what is Kisi, how is Kisi taught in Russian schools, especially in Czech and Dagestan? Mm-hmm. Are they taught from the point of view of Moscow, that Moscow is a you know, civilized cultural that's coming to you, bring to education and education to North Corpus? That was from the Czech, Czech and World Corpus was always 20, 20 years ago. Right. That, is that taught in Czech and universities and Czech and schools? Well, obviously, uh, even many years ago, I was closely following the developments of the Chechen wars and how the Russian media was portraying it. And I'm pretty sure it's been incorporated into their textbooks as well. So the whole independence movement, uh, the whole Chechen movement, obviously, it was coupled uh, with uh, terrorist acts. You you cannot deny that. And obviously, Russians have used that to show their own population that, look, this is what's happening. If we don't intervene, uh, the outcome is going to be the devastating. And I'm pretty sure the Russian uh, uh, textbooks too, the schools too, sort of uh, uh, depict uh, Russians uh, as, you know, liberators. We went in, we, you know, eliminated the terrorists. I mean, if, if it was not Russia, it was another country, obviously they would be doing the same. Uh, but yeah, the whole justification evolved around eliminating the terrorists and uh, the Kremlin and other uh, authoritarian bodies are doing their best. They're trying to sort of uh, create this common identity, Chechnya, Russia, not sure how it's going to work. And uh, like I said, a certain amount of Russians don't know that Chechnya is part of uh, Russia. Uh, you'll be surprised to hear about this. but. To answer your question, yeah, it's, it's depicted as a liberation war. Russia went in to eliminate the Chechen terrorists. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. 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 Almost elimination of any of the smaller languages or ethnicities. Uh, you talked about some deportations, mm-hmm. but um, are these languages dying, especially the smaller ones? Is it just a small village up in the mountains that still speak mm-hmm. it, or what is the, the number? Is there a trend that has decreased? The that that's a that's a great question. Well. Uh, even before the Soviet Union, um, the the last day during the last days of uh, Tsar's regime, I'm I'm forgetting the I'm blinking on the name of the guy who was technically Tsar's right hand. He was he was behind these uh, sort of reforms that would uh, change the alphabet back, back uh, during the Tsar's times. Uh, many North Caucasian uh, republics used, uh, you know, uh, Arabic letters. So there was a massive uh, attempt from Russian side to sort of introduce the Cyrillic, introduce the Russian language, and this had a one primary uh, objective to prevent the move, um, uh, pan-Islamic movements from spreading throughout Russia, beginning from North Caucasus and stretching all the way to Central Asia. And yes, of course, uh, this was coupled with opening uh, with openings of Russian schools, uh, sort of for, uh, uh, introducing the Russian language into the region, and that sort of became even more intense during the Soviet time. Uh, you had uh, Russian ethnic Russians being populating in North Caucasus to make Russia uh, sort of a dominant language. And uh, like I said, uh, uh, the Cyrillic was introduced. And this would technically prevent 
people of North Caucasus to uh, you know have any uh, connection with the uh, either Ottoman Empire or uh, Saudi Arabia or whatever uh, any Muslim country and the idea was the same prevent the spread of radical Islam and yes it did in fact uh, uh, sort of uh, wiped out some indigenous languages but uh, again the idea was to prevent pan-Islamic movements Jadadism for instance and again I'll be talking about this on July 17th if you're around to come along hopefully that answers your question All right. thanks very much thanks so much for coming here Thank <laughs> you.